Welcome back to Carried Interest, building wealth through knowledge and network. Ladies and gentlemen, investors, we have an amazing episode on episode six. Yes, episode six. We've got Dallas Basha of Basha Real Estate, hungry 25-year-old making a huge scene in the Lehigh Valley area within student rentals from developments to multifamily acquisition. But it all started with one property like all of us. And he really dives deep into the weeds of how he's getting it done, scaling up his business and some really interesting mindset tips, tricks, hacks that he uses to just keep forwarding the business. Just focus in on what he has to say about negotiations. And I think that's such a key part of, of real estate, right? Like, you know, you, you have a deal, but then negotiating it to the finish line here, kind of what he does and his tactics in negotiating and in getting deals to the finish line. So we are very, very excited to welcome on Dallas Basha, um, who, you know, you've helped me quite a bit in my own, in the beginning of my real estate venture. Uh, You yourself, 25-year-old Syrian-American real estate entrepreneur. You are the founder, Basha is the founder of Basha Real Estate and Blakeworth, two multi-million dollar real estate companies. Uh, Dallas, I know that before college, you spent time um, actually being like very entrepreneurial, jumping around, you fluent in French, you you had a lot of different, I would say cultural, you know, openings to just different types of worlds, right? You have a Syrian background, you went to French school, then you went to Lehigh. In the midst of all that, you started two multi-million dollar, right, real estate companies at the age of 25, going on 26 very soon, um, focusing on student rentals, multifamily acquisition, even development. Um, and prior to that, you kind of had uh, this business and financial planning. So I'd love to hear more about your journey up to date. Uh, We're really pumped to have you on. And for everyone listening, this is gonna be an amazing episode on how to scale, on how to take really actionable, I would say actionable results from zero to 100. So without further ado, man, thanks for coming on. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. I'm I'm very excited uh, to be a part of your podcast and the, uh, in this week's episode and the countless episodes that you've provided uh, so much value to your audience. And I'm very appreciative and humbled to be here today. So thank you uh, to everyone um, for, for allowing me to be on your, on your podcast today. Absolutely. Uh, so I, I guess just to introduce myself again, my, my name is Dallas. Uh, and uh, as Zach mentioned, uh, I started in the student rental market. Um, I went to school uh, in, a, in a school uh, in Pennsylvania called Lehigh University. And I always knew that I wanted to be involved in real estate at some level. Actually, funny enough, when I was in middle school, I wanted to be an architect because in my mind, being an architect meant being a real estate person. And that's just the, the relationship that I had uh, or that I, I foresaw. Uh, and then little did I know that actually it's really the developer or owner of the real estate that hires the architect and the architect is an employee of uh, either an architectural firm or being hired out from the developer or owner to do a project. And when I found out about that through my sister's friend, um, kind of getting getting experience through hearing what she went through and everything like that, I quickly learned that being an architect was not the route I wanted to do, even though I do have a huge appreciation for the design aspect. And when you get involved, and I'm sure Zach, you've experienced this, uh, although you're not, designated as an architect, you still have a lot of input on the design of the projects, floor plan layouts, and basically being the uh, person, the, the manager of the project of basically seeing what works, what does, and getting options from the, from the architect. So uh, although I didn't pursue that as a career, I still, uh, I, I still use my curiosity and uh, I, I guess uh, passion for once wanting to be an architect uh, in my development projects, uh, even to to this day, and I foresee myself continuing to use uh, what I've learned and uh, my passion in that, um, in, in the projects and whatnot. But uh, slowly but surely, uh, after transitioning from wanting to be an architect, at some point I wanted to be a lawyer. I like to, I like a healthy debate and uh, to <laughs> to prove a point sometimes, uh, sometimes too often. But uh, my sister, uh, she she's an attorney and she went to law school and. She said, Dallas, you don't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> and 
jokingly, of course. And I, although the idea of being a lawyer was very interesting to me and whatnot, but again, the, the idea of working for somebody else was not as appealing to me. And that's when I transitioned into a financial role. Uh, as soon as I turned 18, um, I, or, or leading up to my, to 18, I, I've always been very mindful of saving money and we could get into stories of uh, how, I, how I was entrepreneurial from a very young age. Um, from an example is when I was uh, in middle school, I'd buy broken gaming consoles. And uh, I don't know if you remember the Xbox 360, it had something called uh, the Red Ring of Death. Oh yeah. Uh, if anybody remembers that. And I, I taught myself through Google and YouTube, and this is some, one of the first things I would recommend to anybody to learn anything. 99, if not 100% of everything you ever wanna know is online and it's free. Uh, I, I got a formal education and paid for it, right? But everything I learned could have been taught online for free. So when I have a question that I don't know the answer to, uh, and I don't have someone to talk to, uh, whether it's a mentor or someone that's an expert in their respective field, I Google it and I, I do a ton of research on that specific topic. And that's one thing that I would encourage so many people because a lot of people ask me, uh, Dallas, how should I start when it comes, in, comes to getting started in real estate? And the first thing I do is I recommend uh, a few books that wasn't necessarily on the real estate side that was very helpful was really opening my mind to the possibility of not working for somebody else and working for, your, working for yourself and the idea of rethinking how assets and liabilities work and cash flow. And I'm sure many people have heard this book before, but if you haven't, 10 out of 10 recommend it. It's called Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. That was the first book that really opened my mind into, uh, into this new world where you don't have to limit your, your beliefs and um, buy into the societal pressures of you have to go to college, work a nine to five job until you're 60, retire, and then enjoy life after, you, after the age of 60. The idea of figuring out what amount of what are your monthly expenses as a lifestyle? So you have your, your, the roof over your head, you have the food that you pay for and some leisure expenses, whether you go out, et cetera, determine what that amount is. Let's call it $3,000 a month or $4,000 a month. If you know what your monthly expenses are, you can reverse engineer to determine how much passive income, and I'll, I'll get into the difference between passive and active income because that's a huge differentiator where people think if you're investing in real estate, then you're passive. Most of the time, if you're the one doing the work, you're, it's not truly passive and we could get into that. But reverse engineering how much monthly income that you actually need to sustain yourself, and we said $4,000, and once, and this was the biggest concept that I took away from the book, and it's not, I'm not spoiling the book because there are many other great components or um, gems within it, but the biggest concept of once your monthly expenses equals your passive investments, cash flow, you can retire the next day. That, that, that concept, no one taught it to me except for from reading this book, but it, that's the concept that changed everything. So you're telling me if I can buy a townhouse hypothetically and it can make $1,000 a month, all I need is four townhouses and I can retire the next day. They don't tell you that. They say you have to work until you're 60. So rewiring what you were taught in the societal norms was a huge takeaway from one, this book, but the journey of meeting like-minded individuals, like everybody on this podcast. So leading, so when I was uh, in middle school, uh, the red light of ring, uh, so I basically taught myself how to fix these consoles by opening it up, sodding the little wires together and then flipping them. So I would buy consoles off of eBay for 50 bucks and I would flip them for about 150 to $200 and made a few grand. So little things like that throughout my entire childhood leading up to age 18. When I turned 18, I basically started trading on the stock market. And I was the type of student where I didn't get exceptionally good grades. Um, I, I honestly didn't try that that hard. I was more so interested in the social aspect. And during literally class, I would just be on my phone trading stocks. Uh, and uh, and uh, the once I got into my school, um, I, I knew I got in my school. I, literally from there, senioritis really kicked in. Where I really did not that's senioritis so from freshman year. <laughs> that's most. That's most entrepreneurs we talk to. They're like, I couldn't sit still in my damn desk, so I started 
either trading stocks, selling something, yeah. flipping property, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, and for me, it was more entertaining to make money than to learn about uh, theories and whatnot. And don't get me wrong, certain theories and the things I've learned in school are valuable uh, to an extent. It's a bit ironic that, you know, you, you didn't find as much value in school yet. Yeah, I really want to dive into the weed of like what you're doing now, the business and how you've grown into it. Um, just so people can see like how it's possible, how it's attainable. What's so funny to me and ironic is that although school wasn't your cup of tea, you went to Lehigh and you found this opportunity in the market within student rentals to do something better. So in the same kind of like call it a business, because that's what all these private schools are in that same business setting, you kind of stepped out of the classroom and you said, wait, so I see a gap in the marketplace here. I think I can provide some value. Um, and then flat, you know, fast forward 64 doors later, you've raised two and a half million dollars to, to acquire some of these properties. I'd like to know where you saw that opportunity in the market and then how you went after your first, your first piece of property. Like, how did you do that? When was that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the opportunity, the moment I, I discovered the opportunity within that specific market and knowing that I wanted to begin in the real estate world was my freshman year. As a freshman, I just by being uh, conscientious of my surroundings and just uh, being observant, I realized that there were two or three main companies, off-campus student rental companies that owned basically 90% of the market. And they essentially had their own monopoly where students that want to live off campus, which typically they live off campus their junior and senior year, they're limited to those three, uh, three companies. And unfortunately, those three companies, um, they would charge an absurd amount per unit and the quality of housing was very very low uh some honestly i'm willing to bet that the majority of those spaces weren't even compliant with the city's requirements uh, in order for them to be house housing quality for not only for students but for anybody so there were a lot of slumlords essentially and what i realized was these these students uh one the majority of the students aren't paying for their own rent. It's either the school through the financial aid program or it's the parents typically. Um, obviously there's some, there's a, the minority are the ones paying it for themselves, but that's basically the, the construct of the off-campus housing market. And all the, the, the people, for whoever's the one paying for it, they're all willing to pay this absurd amount, high price point for low quality housing. So what I realized was one, I wanna be a part of this market because there's a lot of upside in my mind. I saw, um, I identified the market. One, I, was ve I became very comfortable and familiar with the market over the, the, the semesters and then eventually years before I actually first bought my property. So freshman year, I identified the opportunity and freshman and sophomore year, I tried buying my first property and I could get into that. Yeah, uh, what went wrong there? If you don't mind, just, just jumping in. Uh, yeah, yeah, so uh, freshman year, I wanted to buy a townhouse and the, there was a for sale sign just randomly. I wasn't really actively seeking out properties through online searches and everything like that, but I was just randomly off campus and I saw that there was a for sale sign for a townhouse that was well located. And I reached out and mind you, this is the first time I ever get involved in real estate. Uh, so very, I'm a huge noob, don't know what I'm doing, but nonetheless, I give the guy a call <laughs> and uh, he was, he, it was listed for, I think like 140. And when I called, I basically just wanted to do a property tour. And it's funny, actually, a lot of, um, some, some aspects of going out and seeing properties, one hang up, I guess, that some people may have is I don't have the money. So why even bother searching right now? And I would challenge uh, those individuals to say, well, if you have the money, it doesn't matter because you need to find good deals in the first place. So the first thing that you have to do once you identify a market you want to be in is you have to find good properties. You have to find good investments because you could have a, a billion dollars, but if you have nowhere to put it, then it's, it's useless. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm a firm believer in finding good investments first and then the money will follow because if it truly is a good investment, the money will always follow. Uh, and that was basically my mindset from the get-go and it, I, I still hold that same mindset today. So when I 
introduced myself to the guy, basically said I'm a young real estate entrepreneur looking to buy this property. Can you show me around and this and that? So he did show it to me. And long story short, for that particular property, uh, he there there was um, there were tenants living there at the time that were non-students, and he essentially not he ended up not selling it he decided it's he just didn't want to go through the entire process and right. and whatnot so and he still owns it today uh, i actually sophomore year i started a financial planning practice uh, by partnering with a uh, financial company where essentially you're under their umbrella and then you could really just do whatever you want from there and through that i uh, i ended up being the top college representative for two years in a row and made six figures so that was the nest egg that I, that I built. And it so happens that, oh, actually with that nest egg that I, I built, I actually learned with one of my friends who was, who was involved in real estate. So that was another lesson I learned. Okay. Here's another little piece. The other lesson I learned is if you want to get involved uh, in something that you haven't done before, there's no, uh, there's nothing wrong with starting by yourself and, really not know what you're doing, but kind of figuring it, figuring it out, that's fine. But another great way is to partner with somebody that knows what they're doing. And that's honestly a great way for you to get exposed um, and also to put your name on something. So let's say Zach is having, has a, a deal that he's working on and he has a project and you can put in twenty-five, $50,000 or whatever amount that he's willing to accept as a minimum amount. And now uh, you can say that you've been a part of a project that that's the size of the one that Zach is doing. So you're able to one, put your name to something uh, and it costs, it costs you a few, whatever sum of, mon of money it is. And on top of that, you're gonna get a return on your money. So it's also a good investment opportunity. And if you're really strategic, uh, so for anyone that's friends with Zach, so maybe you would think of doing this, uh, if you're really strategic, you can tell Zach, hey, listen, I wanna partner with you on, on this, this deal. I'll raise all the money or I'll, I'll raise a lot of money or whatever the deal is or whatever value proposition you can provide to him contingent on me being able to be named a GP, uh, which is a general partner. Zach may not agree to it, but you can always try. Uh, or he so, might. You never know. Well, that's, yeah, that's exactly. oddly how I, how I kind of structured my first project, put some of my own money into it is partnerships, which is extremely key. And that's, I'm hearing that's how you did your first one. That was the first real estate investment I did. I partnered with a friend. It was a, uh, it's a gas station in New, <laughs> in New Jersey. Honestly, I didn't really know too much about the project. That's I just had a lot of trust in my friend. And uh, that's the other thing. So people don't buy products for the products they buy. They buy it because of the person. People don't invest in certain projects because of the project themselves. They invest in the person that they're investing with. So having credibility, um, being reputable, and honestly, doing right by people, I'm a firm believer in, even in the short term, uh, if you may lose some, some money in the short term in order to build long-term credibility and uh, long-term relationships, it's 100% worth it. Uh, and I've, I've had peers tell me, Dallas, you're crazy. Why aren't you paying yourself um, more? Or why aren't you paying yourself first? And in my mind, uh, Maybe in industry standards, that's the way of doing it. Well, it is, right? They, people get paid first. But in my mind, I would rather service my investors first and foremost and making sure that they're not only taking care from what was agreed upon, but going well and beyond from those expectations. Because maybe in the short term, I'm not paying myself the adequate amount, but I know that in the long run, by building that type of relationship and being that type of investor and partner, that they would be willing to put more money into my properties. And as I make money. So it's really a compound effect where if you give me $50,000, uh, Zach, and I'm able to give you $50,000 plus another $20,000 on top of that, and now you have, have $70,000 in your pocket and you still want to be involved in real estate, you'll most likely reinvest it with me. You're going to say, Dallas, I don't want this money. I want you to put it back into another deal. And that goes back to what a lot of uh, bigger players will say is they have, they're capitalized. They have the money to do deals, but they're having a hard time finding good deals. And where Zach and uh, myself and others, for those listening, where you have opportunity is big sharks. You have big players that are looking at 100, 200 plus unit deals. Uh, and then you have uh, every day, and then I'll say on the smaller end, 
You have people that are first home buyers buying their single family home. And if you're able to position yourself in a way where you're essentially earlier on, if you're able to, to take up the crumbs and eat the crumbs that the big players aren't really looking at, it's really it's, it's uh, finding the zone, the in-between zone where the big players aren't looking at it, they're not worrying about it. And then the smaller players may not be looking at it either. That little, the, the zone where you want to be in, uh, I think that that's a really interesting way to position yourself and to build a nice portfolio. And then you could scale up from there. I want to touch on, on something that, that you've been kind of a few things you've been saying, like just so listeners out there can understand. Um, number one, you, you worked your ass off to make six figures. Nobody just makes six figures. Like at 19, you worked hard to, and you saved your money. You use that money mm. to partner on a deal. So you partnered with somebody that you trust. And now, you know, you have investors who trust you and you were able to be a part of an underwriting acquisition management, potentially an exit of a very unique project. And that kind of catapulted, catapulted you into this, you know, sphere of investing. But prior to that, you did walkthroughs or you did a walkthrough. I'm sure you looked at a bunch of deals before starting to scale the student rental. One thing, and I've been thinking about it a lot too, that you really honed in on is find value. And I think the only way that us as young investors or anyone starting can find value in their markets is to constantly look at deals. Like look at a hundred deals before you close one. Um, you know, look at, if you're going to, for multifamily, like look at 50 to hundred multifamily deals, like walk those properties, talk to those brokers, even if you don't close it. So, you know, when opportunity strikes, you will have seen a hundred of these already. And then you want to jump. I think that's one thing you pointed out that is extremely key. Um, how, how have you been scale? Like when, when you started the student rental business, how, how did you start with that first student rental? How did you raise that money? How did you put the deal together? And then I'd like for to hear how you scaled it from then on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the first couple properties, they weren't the typical ones that we look into now. Uh, the first actual property I purchased was a piece of land. Uh, so purchased that outright with the, the capital I, I made in the financial planning business. And then also coupled with the returns I received from my friends. Uh, and then something I realized, so this was another interesting, I guess, uh, helpful thing for the listeners or viewers is a question I received is how do you raise, how, how do you raise money? Where, where do you start? And I would say that you start with who you know, because if the people that know you aren't willing to invest with you, then it's going to be a little bit harder to convince someone that doesn't know you at all. Uh, but another point, interestingly enough, which is kind of uh, on the flip of that coin is when it comes to sales, and I learned this through my financial planning practice, uh, you get less, it's less awkward when you're pitching to somebody that you don't know versus someone that you do know, because you already have a relationship with them. And you, it, it, it's a little awkward, right? You know, if they say they're off, about it if they want to say no to you because they don't really want to say no to you and then you feel bad because like what, what do you mean you know me it's a, so interestingly enough uh it's a, it's the two sides of the coin one trying to trying to raise capital with people who you know first and foremost that's where you start but once you jump from there to people that you don't know it gets a lot easier and by then you've got you've uh, had a lot of repetition on raising capital uh so now when it comes to uh, raising capital, uh, something that will be very helpful. Uh, there's typically, there are a few things that people look for when in investing. One thing that I like to do is to put myself in the shoes of the person investing. If I'm an investor, what would I look for? I would look for somebody that one, I trust. So this personality, I vibe with them energy, right? Uh, they, they do what they say that they're going to do. Two, someone that has experience. Have they done this before? Is this their first time doing it? Is this their first rodeo? Or is this something that they're really experienced with? Experience is key. Uh, three is, what's their skin in the game? How committed are they? Not only but through their time, but are they actually putting their own money? Are, are they putting um, their money where their mouth is, essentially? And uh, those are the three main ones. And I'm sure I'm missing some. If you, if you think of any throughout this conversation, please add them. But those are the three main ones, right? It's the person you're dealing with. Do I like them? Uh, do I trust them? Two, what's their experience? And three, what's their skin in the game, essentially? Now, what I've started doing was uh, on social media and just through people, through conversation with Alice, what do you do? Uh, through general conversations, I'm a real, uh, I'm a real estate investor. 
And uh, through my social media, I would always ex basically share the experience and the journey of the little real estate things I was involved with. And through that, <clears throat> through that process, I started exposing my viewers to me being a real estate person. And earlier on, mind you, I had very little experience, but just through the, the constant um, exposure of being involved in real estate, doing what I say I'm going to do, uh, it starts bleeding into the viewer's mind that, okay, Dallas is the real estate person. I have a real estate question I can ask Dallas. I want to get involved in real estate. I, I can talk to Dallas, this and that. And another thing is when you pitch to people, even your friends and family, they're going to say no, right? And I think uh, knowing that ahead of time is something that is, uh, it, it takes weight off your shoulder because when you know that you're going to get a no, you just have to, the way that I think about it is, okay, I'm, they said no, which is perfectly fine. I tell people that I'm more of like, a, I take the objection away uh, when it comes to pitching. Basically, it's perfectly fine whether you do this or not, we're still going to do the deal. Um, and maybe next time, uh, or, or the next time that we have another opportunity, I'll be happy to share it with you. And if that's the right time, then you'll invest. If not, then that's perfectly fine. Uh, I hope that some way that we can continue to provide value to one another, but that's perfectly okay. And through that type of, uh, I guess, positioning where it's okay if they're not going to invest, uh, but you're still going to do the deal anyway. Now in their mind, they're thinking, wait a second, I wasn't the person stopping the deal from going on. They're still committed to getting the deal done. They, they got the deal done and they are being successful on what they said that they were going to do. So now the next time you ask that person, hey, do you want to invest? They're more susceptible to saying yes than no, because one, you, this is the second time you're asked, second or third or fourth time you're asking them. But not only that, this is the second or third or fourth time that they're sitting on the sidelines and realizing, holy shit, Dallas is still doing deals. And I'm here sitting like a duck, not doing anything. And now they get FOMO, uh, fear of missing out. So that was uh, a huge, a huge thing that I realized is it's okay for someone to say no. What's not okay is for you to leave them in the in the back files and forgetting about them. The follow through and the follow up and constant communication with them is huge because you don't know who you know that may be willing to invest. Uh, funny enough, someone that. I became friends with, I went to LA to an event and this event I attended, the only reason why I went and hold on, how I found out about this was a, this event is I randomly started following someone on Instagram. They randomly said that, Hey, we're going to go to this event in LA. It's a basically like, a, it was a Tony Robbins event. Honestly, it was a Tony Robbins event. Um, and I thought to myself, uh, I, I get who Tony Robbins is. I don't really want to, I don't think I would gain the, the value of the, the hoorah type thing, but I know the people that are attending, um, they are people that I want to meet. So I never met this person on Instagram. I said, yep, let's, I'm down. I'm one of the 10 people that would be down to go to an Airbnb and, and do this experience. So I, I paid this person $200 or whatever it was, fly across country. I'm in DC going all the way to LA, stay in an Airbnb. I, I share a bed with, with a guy I've never met before. The, there's like people on couches and like we're literally 10 into an apartment. Just things we do for real estate people. It's real. <laughs> It's real out here. 100%. To this event, I realized Tony Robbins of the ultra VIP section, then you have the VIP, then you have the mid-tier, then you have the general mission tickets. We bought the general missions, the cheapest tickets. And I realized, and this is a story that is actually, I did this when I was younger for sports games, funny enough. Um, I know it's people may not like it, but anywho. I realized the person that I want to be meeting with is the person that paid $10,000 for their ticket, not the person that paid $200 like me. So I literally, for the, literally the entire event, every day, there's no assigned seating, but you, you have a badge, right? So I literally take off my badge and I literally just walk in, walk to the VIP section, full confidence in my mind. I just, keep, I, I just told myself like, that's my seat. I don't, I don't care what anyone says that's where i'm supposed to sit i'm, I'm a vip uh at least in spirit and that's the, that's where i'm gonna sit and i'm gonna meet somebody that i'm supposed to meet with and literally no one said anything um one person said oh where are you sitting i'm sitting, oh, I'm sitting right over there uh and no one asked for my badge no one asked for anything and at that event i sat next to somebody that i actually became friends with 
and he was in the IP section. And fast forward 12 months later, he invested in one of my real estate projects. Uh, so some people, when I said I'm going to a Tony Robbins event, they make fun of me because they think it's all BS or whatever it is. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't get it. I'm not going for Tony Robbins. <laughs> I'm going for the people that are going to see Tony Robbins. And it all paid off uh, for this one specific example of someone I met. So uh, one thing that I, obviously you can't do it as much so during uh, this period because of the quarantines and everything like that. But one thing I was a huge proponent of after graduating, and I wish I did it sooner, is going to events, meeting people, meeting entrepreneurs, like literally going out of your comfort zone to meeting somebody. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but I moved to, after I graduated, I moved to Florida and I was living in Miami for a period of time where I literally moved there not knowing one person. I didn't know anybody. But what I did was for the first month, every single day, I would go to two events I found online. Uh, I think one of the websites called Eventbrite, which is helpful to find events in your area and also meetup.com. Uh, and I would go to two events every single day. And through that, that process, I was able to figure out, okay, what events do I like? And what are the type of people I like? And through that process, I was able to meet some incredible people and people that I'm friends with to this day, uh, years later. So those are some tidbit stories. And I know I always go off track on how things, uh, the, the scaling, the scaling, we're, we're bringing you back. We're, I think yeah. Jesse, I think yeah. Jesse's yeah. got a question. He's going to bring you back. He's doing a rope. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm curious about Southlight. Um, you've got 40 units packaged as a portfolio here. It looks like across several different properties. Can you expand a little bit on, um, first off, how you acquired each of those properties uh, and also why you decided to, to put them together as a portfolio? Because it looks like the portfolio is what people are investing in and, and not the individual properties. Correct me if I'm wrong, of course. So the way that I've structured it is, uh, is basically... And the way the process of scaling and going back to Zach's original question of how, how this, be, how did it turn into what it is today? Uh, it started with buying one property uh, and then uh, from there bought another property. So buying individual properties and uh, earlier on the structuring, like the legal structuring of everything wasn't hashed out yet. I was, again, I was figuring as I went along and I had a little experience and then through one, the experience side of things I've received, I've, was able to meet some incredible real estate entrepreneurs that I uh, asked questions to, and then uh, my own research. Uh, I essentially structured it where for each new property, for the most part, I would form a new LLC. Uh, and within that LLC that owns the real estate itself, I would raise money for investors to buy into the LLC that owns the real estate 100%. Now, what that allows us to do is one, investors, uh, they, they know what they're investing in. They know that they're investing into one specific property. Uh, two, uh, there's a, there's insulation for liability purposes. I would never want to have investors nor myself own the property outright. So you're able to provide some insulation there. And three, what that allows me to do is uh, for uh, my real estate company, uh, Basha Real Estate, I'm able to scale the company. I'm able to scale uh, its ownership in different properties without being limited to one specific or a few specific investors. So an investor, investor A and B that bought into the first project, they don't have to be uh, investors in other projects. So I was able to provide that flexibility when scaling. Uh, the big portion of the portfolio uh, came actually funny enough earlier this year in January, uh, we bought nine townhouses um, we had another one that I bought earlier in 2019. So bundled it to 10 and that took me over a year to negotiate. And funny enough, almost all of my properties, <laughs> it's so much, it's a lot of time, a lot of negotiations, a lot of back and forth. Uh, sellers either get cold feet or they want to, they want to entertain other offers and it's a process. So for that first big portfolio that we purchased, um, I'll, I'll bundle the, the one into the nine, just calling it the 10, 10 unit or the 10 house portfolio. That one took over a year of negotiations. And how that came about was one of my friends, his roommate's dad was the, the landlord uh, within, my, within the area I invest in. And I, I, asked, I, I asked my friend, hey, can you provide me the information of, your, of the landlord? because I'm a new owner in the area. I, I generally just want to get some insight on 
contractors, recommendations, the pros and cons, just basically to get the rundown of what he recommends within this market uh, and anything, any advice essentially. And through the conversation, I think this was back in what, 20, 2018, I think, uh, through the conversation, he, he said, provide great insight, helpful input and everything like that. And then in passing, he said, oh yeah, we we're trying to selling, the, we tried selling the portfolio a year ago, uh, but it just didn't work out. And then I begged the question, oh, well, are you interested in selling it today? And that was the start of an ongoing process of negotiating with them over literally one entire year. It took over 12 months to, to actually get to closing, but it was the redundancy and, and, the, um, and being committed to the sale and following up and negotiation and being willing to walk away. So in my mind, I have a price point where I'm willing to pay and it may be different from what the seller's willing to pay. And originally they wanted, I think it was like $2.1 million for this portfolio. And in my mind, my, my number came out to be 1.6. So I essentially broke down and people have different negotiation styles. Sometimes they don't show their cards on the table. I'm very transparent. Maybe it's not a good thing, but I'm very transparent with my thought process when I'm negotiating. And I basically tell people like, listen, uh, and this is the other thing. If it doesn't, and I tell them, if it doesn't make sense for you and it doesn't make sense for me, then we don't have a deal here. There's, there's no hard feeling. Just it is what it is. And um, people when negotiating, we all have ranges. So Zach, if you're a seller, you have a range of how much, how low you're willing to sell a property for. And obviously you want to try to sell for as high as you want to sell, sell it for. As a buyer, I have a range of how high I'm willing to go. And obviously I want to try to get as low as possible. In order for there to be a deal, we, our ranges have to meet in the middle in that sweet zone of how low you're willing to go and how high I'm willing to go. That's where a deal takes place. So in negotiations, you're as a seller, you're trying to get the buyer to go as high up in his range as possible. And as a seller, or excuse me, as a buyer, I'm trying to get the seller to go as low within his range. And because there's a lack of information, I don't know what the seller is thinking. You don't know what I'm thinking. There is, there's the unknown and through conversation, try, and this is almost like an art, uh, is to determine through the conversations and, um, and talking points of determining, okay, what, how low is the seller really willing to go? and how low, and in order for you to determine that, you have to do that fast enough before he finds another deal or another person to sell to, or before he gets just sick of the conversation and just walks away and doesn't wanna deal with you anymore. So it's a fine line of negotiations and going through that. But to go back to the, the question as far as the, the scaling and everything like that, essentially uh, from the first couple properties to the 10, 10 house portfolio, I, my, my mindset was always growing. Um, their peers, their pe close uh, family friends, and also even my family said, Dallas, don't, why, why are you buying another property before you even finish your first one? Or before you really solidify, don't you think you're taking on too much risk, taking on too much? And had I listened to them, I would still own only one property today. Uh, so my mindset is, granted, you want to be mindful of not taking on too much where you literally can't do it and everything fails and the, the, the house just crumbles. I'm not saying to do that, but know yourself and what your capacity is and willing to take risks because I can promise you if you were to listen to everyone, especially those that are a little bit more conservative or traditional thinking, you won't get anything done. Uh, the fact that if you're in your, if you're a millennial and you're buying an investment property, that's our, and you only have one, they're thinking, goodness, you're, you're, you're set. Whereas, when you start opening up your mind and realizing, wait a second, that first one wasn't actually that hard. Why don't I just buy a second one, third one, fourth one? And really it's, it's, it's getting, um, it's really getting that first experience. That's the hardest, mostly because of that mental block and going from, and this is a Peter Thiel book, uh, zero to one, uh, where going from z zero, so you owning zero real estate to your first one, is very hard and mostly because it's a mental block but going from one to a thousand one to however high you want to go is much easier than it is for you to go from zero to one and what you'll find is when you do small deals and you do larger deals what you'll discover is the work that it takes to buy a small deal is just as much work if not sometimes even more work because it's just most of the time you're dealing with people that have, haven't had experience in, in uh dealing with investors or they're just more mom and pop types where they don't know what they're doing, honestly. Uh, 
it, it, it's either the same or more or less work to do bigger deals. So what you'll discover is why am I going to spend all this time to buy this three unit complex when I could spend the same amount of time by a 30, 30 unit complex and get paid more. So that's the other thing that was uh, really big, but uh, yeah, overall uh, the way I work is I, I raise capital um, when I, when I buy property. So I'll act as the general partner GP uh, and uh, for my efforts and work, I get, I get compensated a piece of the pie uh, that is tied to the performance of the, of the asset or the project. And my investors uh, are limited partners. So the, the benefit and the value proposition I have to them is they're able to invest in real estate, get the same benefits of real estate without having to do any of the work. They're not going to get a call uh, asking to clean the, the toilet. They're, they're not going to get hassled with uh, um, or, or being liable to the debt that's needed for the project because I'm the one that's responsible for that. And it's really a true way of being a passive in investor. <clears throat> now, I mentioned earlier on in the podcast that you can be a, once your passive investments equal your lifestyle expenses, you can retire the next day. One thing that's very important for you to understand when you buy a real estate investment property and you're the one managing it, even if you hire a property management company and you're just overseeing it, the fact that you're doing work on it uh, takes away the ability for you to call it passive. It's not passive. For it to be passive, you have to be able, and people can argue in technicality and everything like that, but in my mind, for it to truly be passive, you do no work and it's no headache. Uh, so for investors, the limited partners, they are truly passive investors. And for those that are actually working the asset and overseeing and managing the asset, I consider myself an active investor. I put my own money in the deal, but I'm actively managing it, which is why I'm an active investor. So uh, when it comes to thinking about real estate, um, I would say that there are three types of um, part, uh, participants, if you will, uh, players. You can either... You can either be a, uh, the first one is you're fully engaged and this is the most work. Um, you are the property manager. You put the money up to buy the property. You do all the work. It's basically a one man show. That one, yes, you don't have to pay a property manager, but you have to compensate yourself for your time being worked on it. And that's the most time intensive. Most people don't like doing that. That's really what I think, what was the idea of what it meant to be in real estate back in the day was you're doing everything, right? But the idea of, of uh, being able to do that and scaling, you can't do it because you can only, you as an individual properties, 200 properties, what happens when they're in different states or, or counties, et cetera, you, you just cannot do it. So the second player, which is what I participate in, is I'm essentially a asset manager. So I manage the passive, I, I manage the property managers. I oversee everything. I make sure that everything is running smoothly. And um, I also happen to also raise the capital. So I'm orchestrating all that. And that's the second type of player. The third player, and a lot of people, they end up realizing that they prefer to be the third player. Uh, and that is to be truly a passive investor. They partner with some like myself or somebody like Zach and the money that you contribute into the deal is the only effort that you need to do for the project. You literally do nothing. You, you go to sleep, you wake up and you get a check every month or every quarter, depending on how you get paid out. Uh, so that's something that's important to think about is what kind of player do you want to be? Do you have an everyday business? Do you, do you have a job? You have a, you're, you have a company on the side and do you truly want to be a hundred percent involved in the real estate day to day? That's something that's important. I think to ask yourself, uh, and it's okay. I mean, frankly, if I had, if I built a big enough wealth, like honestly, it's easier to be a passive investor. You, you literally do nothing uh, and you get a, a monthly or quarterly check. So, so Dallas, is, is that your goal to eventually yeah. become a passive investor? Or do you want to grow um, your company to have tens of thousands of units? What are your goals for the next, um, we'll call it five years? Yeah, uh, appreciate the question. Uh, yeah, I, I would say that, being a pass, I do want to be a passive investor, but I don't want to solely be a passive investor. I like to, uh, I, I have different strategies for different uh, asset investments or different uh, things I'm involved with. When it comes to my respective company, uh, right now, I'm, I'm really focused on expanding 
our, our reach within the, the school that we're in and the market there and essentially create a proof of concept uh, for our ability to not only identify really good real estate locations and properties, but also renovate them to a standard that's, that, that, out, that surpasses any of our competitors. My goal is to be 10 times better than anything else in the market. And through that proof of concept, expand to other schools around the country. So I'd be phase two. Uh, and uh, from there, uh, honestly, who knows? Uh, from there, I'd like to expand to things outside of school or, or students and expand to other market or other demographics uh, and really become the best I can be at, uh, at real estate repurposing and find uh, value add opportunities and being creative. And that's one thing I really love about real estate is I think it's a combination of uh, the science and the arts. The science aspect of it is the numbers, right? What are the numbers? Does it pencil behind the napkin? Does the, does the deal make sense? And you have to start there uh, to, to deter, I think, to determine if the property or a project is worth pursuing. But the more, the, the fun aspect of it where I really get a kick out of it is the creative side where the creative side most people don't see and where can you really drive value for a property so let's say originally a property was four or uh, four units and if through some strategic or some creative thinking and whatnot you're able to squeeze in a fifth or a sixth unit because you're able to subdivide something etc that i consider the cherry on top or the gravy and uh, I start with the foundation, which is the science and the art aspect. The creative side of it is really driving alpha uh, to uh, get high high returns. But to answer your question, I mean, right now for the next uh, year or so, two years, I'm really just honing in on my craft, on being really good at driving costs down, replicating our model uh, really well, not only in this market, but then expanding to another market. And then from there, scaling up um, to to a lot of properties, essentially. Numbers-wise, I haven't given that too much thought. So, so Dallas, I mean, I think just hearing your story and, and everything that you've been able to accomplish, I mean, it's, I think it's really inspirational for a lot of younger investors out there and, and just seeing your journey and, and how it's come along in the last couple of years or so. As we kind of wrap this up here, um, you know, I'm really curious, what's one piece of advice, one thing that you would give to newer investors um, as they kind of start their journey? Well, the first thing, which is again, the hardest is to do it, to start. And one thing by starting, you may realize that I really don't like this and that's perfectly fine, yeah. but you will never know unless you actually do it. I know a few people where they're all up in their heads where they think I, I need to know everything before I start. I need to be perfect before I start. But if you go with that mindset, you're literally, I know friends that, have that mindset, but they haven't started and, and years pass on. And the experience, really the valuable knowledge that you're gonna gain is through the doing and the experience. And let's just put this in perspective. Let's say that for you to do your first deal, uh, it costs you $10,000, right? Let's say worst case scenario, you lose the $10,000. I can promise you the experience that you would have learned and the knowledge that you, you've learned if you actually are taking it seriously, would be worth those $10,000 because you, for one, you're not gonna make those same mistakes. And if you realize that that's something that you actually do wanna pursue, but shit, I, I, I messed up, I, I, I lost my $10,000. Uh, now you actually have some battle wounds, if you will, but you actually have experience in going through the, the dirt and, and getting your teeth knocked in, figuratively speaking, uh, that's the real value that you're gonna get. And for those that, again, if for some reason you can't make it work out for uh, for your first deal, partner with somebody. Uh, that's the easiest, honestly, that's the easiest way for you to build your experience, um, get some sort of return, hopefully, if you're able to put your, some of your own money in and build credibility and a network. Uh, that's, I'm gonna tie that into the, the answer. Networking and meeting valuable quality people is huge and if, you can take away one thing is if you're a, I'm not going to say a, a master networker, but if you are phenomenal at honestly understanding people, meeting people and being comfortable with, with strangers, I, I think that's a really skillful, um, uh, it's a very valuable skill to have because you're going to be dealing with people on an everyday basis. That's one thing I love about real estate 
is you're going to meet people of all walks of life and people of all different types of personalities. And the idea for me is, I don't know who I'm going to meet, but it's just going to be, it's honestly going to be entertaining. It's almost like a game. It's like, who, which character am I meeting today? And, and sometimes, it even takes, it, sometimes it even takes flying across the country to sleep in the bed with a stranger so you can get a deal done. Sometimes. 100%. <laughs> sometimes. There's sometimes. Uh, and I definitely, I know I didn't get into it, but I certainly have a lot more war, or those, that wasn't a war story, but I do have a lot of uh, stories that weren't as pretty or glamorous. And I know that um, mentioning the 60 plus doors and everything like that, it sounds great. But honestly, the, the amount of uh, challenges and problems that we had to overcome, those are the stories. Those are the lessons I think were very valuable. And I hope that through the, the, some of the lessons I shared or the takeaways I, I had with the audience, I hope you guys had some value in it and uh, would, would be happy to answer any other questions that anyone may have. But I, I am very appreciative for you guys asking me to be on this podcast and I, yeah. I hope your audience found some value. You, you've given me a lot of value through my first couple of projects over here alone and just kind of going a little bit deeper into some of yours. For the people who want to reach out to you, whether it's kind of learn more about what you're doing or maybe they want to be passive investors themselves. Maybe they just want to say, you know what? This guy Dallas knows what the hell he's talking about. I don't have time for all of that. Where can they find you? Where, where can they reach you? Where can they learn more? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd say my Instagram is the best way to contact me. And then from there, we could have a conversation, jump on a call. Uh, my handle is at Dallas Basha. And I believe it should be on the, the information. That's B-A-S-H-A. And uh, your website, it's BashaRealEstate.com, correct? Correct. Yep, that's, uh, that's one of our, our, our websites. But in as far as contacting me, shoot me uh, an Instagram message. Uh, if you want to jump on a call, we'd be happy to talk to you guys and try to provide as much value as I can and uh, go from there. Awesome. I'm going to try to wrap this up because uh, we went through quite a bit here, but you touched on a lot of topics that we really harp on as a podcast. Um, you, know, you talked about partnerships. You talked about the uh, artistic approach to real estate or what, what we consider the tangibility aspect. Um, you, you talked about goal setting. So you, you hammered out a lot of things that um, we find very important and that a lot of our other guests have found uh, important in getting themselves ramped up to where they are today. Um, so thank you for that. And I hope everyone enjoyed this, this episode. And that is today's episode. If any of you current and future investors want us to talk about any specific real estate topics you're interested in or to ask us questions like, Jesse, how do you get your hair to stay so perfect? Nate, what's your favorite shaving cream? Feel free to email us directly at carriedinterestpodcasts at gmail.com. Yes, that's carriedinterestpodcasts at gmail.com. I'm telling you, the Google sponsorship is well on its way. Please tune in next time for more real estate knowledge. Thanks for listening to Carried Interest. Peace out and go build some equity.